Hey everyone, we have an exciting announcement starting next month with our new book, Hunt Gather Parent. We have a new community to offer. We'll be hosting this through bookclubs.com and it'll be a great place for people who want to engage with us a little bit more. We're going to have discussions about what we're currently reading and we will have monthly workshop meetings where we discuss the book and how we're applying it to our work as speech language pathologists or teachers or parents. If you are interested, we're going to be posting about this on our Instagram and you can also check it out on Patreon. If you go to our membership tiers, there will be a new tier where you can sign up to be a book club community member. We're so excited about this and we can't wait to see where this takes us. So we hope everybody who's interested goes and checks it out, become a Patreon member, and we hope to build our community. You're listening to the SLP Book Club. We're your hosts, Adrian Frost and Laura Geyser. This month we're reading Age of Opportunity by Dr. Lawrence Steinberg. Let's get into it. Hi, Laura. Hi, Adrian. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the SLP Book Club. Today, we are wrapping up Age of Opportunity. We're going to be discussing Chapter 9 and the conclusion and our final thoughts. So we're so happy to have you here for that. But first, we're going to play Like It, Love It, Leave It. Okay, Laura, I'm feeling excited about this one, so I'm going to go first. All right. Bagel, scone, croissant. Bagel. Okay, wait. I'm not just choosing one. Okay. (laughs) Bagel, <laughs> scone, croissant. I am going to love a bagel, like a croissant, and leave a scone. But that is hard because, mm. like, a fresh baked scone. Sometimes scones <laughs> really hit. It de- kind of depends on the flavor, but like a mm. lemon when they're like just the right hardness on the outside, and then so warm and soft on the inside. Oh my god! Now I yeah. kind of can't. I cannot leave a scone behind. <laughs> Do I ever get to eat a scone ever again in my life? No, but I love a bagel. If I could eat a bagel every single day with cream cheese and lox, that would be my go-to breakfast. So I've got to love that. Same thing with a croissant, like a fresh baked croissant, a croissant from a French bakery. Flaky. Yeah. (laughs) Just tearing off little pieces and feeling so elegant while you eat it. Love that. (laughs) I feel like I do love croissants and scones more when I eat them than a bagel, but I have to love a bagel because it is the thing I choose the most. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Hmm. trust yourself. I don't know. This is hard for me. I know. This is so hard. Okay. What are you going to go? I don't know how you're going to make this decision. I I mean, I know. I'm going to love a bagel, like a scone, leave a croissant. Even though I do love croissants, it's like this very decadent treat for me. And it's not, I don't even eat scones that much, but. Yeah, that's the thing. We have to love a bagel because we probably both eat bagels. Of course, you seek out a bagel. You want to, you crave a bagel all the time, right? I went through a period (laughs) where I was having this like delicious bagel every morning, probably for like two weeks. What would you put on it? It was everything bagel, Uh plain cream cheese, sliced baby cucumbers oh so it's like small it's fresh the skin is not as tough as like a big one sliced tomatoes on top of that Uh and then the everything bagel seasoning from trader joe's on the top 
And sometimes if I had a hard boiled egg, I'd slice that up and put it on there too. Protein. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) I can't believe you're going everything bagel with everything seasoning. I know. It's double everything. Yeah. The garlic (laughs) breath out of control afterwards. (laughs) Okay. Did you ever try the bagel I sent you from Whole Foods that's like the healthy, low carb, high protein bagel? No, I didn't because I never go to Whole Foods. There used to be one by me and now there's not. And I like, I don't go. But I would like a healthy bagel because that's the thing is I had one every day for two weeks and I was like, this is not sustainable. This is not a good idea. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Okay. I think I want to say it was called like Better Bread Company or something like that. Mm. And I told you, I don't go to Whole Foods, even though I do have them, a lot of them near me. I went for the sole purpose of finding these bagels because I was like, got to try it. And I did love it, but it's got so much fiber in it that half a bagel and you are full, full to the brim. I recommend trying it. The taste isn't quite right, but they do get that texture, like that chewy exterior. Okay. That's like you wouldn't expect on a healthy bagel. Worth a shot. Frozen aisle at Whole Foods. These bagels, they come in a little white bag. I do love a bagel. (laughs) Okay. Let me ask you. Backpack. Fanny pack, crossbody bag. Okay, listen, I saw this one and I was intrigued because I have some stuff to say about it. Okay, love a backpack, like a fanny pack, leave the crossbody. Okay. So here's the thing. Backpacks, so versatile, right? You can get a big one. You can get a small one. You can get like kind of a fashion-y one. Like I have a great leather one from Madewell that I really like. It's kind of a mini backpack. I want to say the last time we went out together, you were wearing a backpack. It's just small. It's cute. It's like yeah, when yeah. my yeah when my daughter was younger, it was like good to like I couldn't really mess with the purse, and sometimes it's what the outfit is calling for. It's a mini bag, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I love a fanny pack for the hands free situation. That's great for a walk. That's great for an event. Oh, like yeah. you're going to the fair, you don't want to deal with. You want your hands free. You wear the little fanny pack. Love it. But the thing is, is that like the kids, the hip people, they're wearing the fanny pack as a crossbody. Have you been seeing this? Yes. Yes. And I'm. it's confusing. It's like if I wear it the regular way, am I just looking like a weird mom? Am I not cool? You know, you know the thoughts. <laughs> I don't. But I feel like if I tried to wear the fanny pack as a crossbody, it would look like I was trying too hard. Yeah. It's really I've I've struggled. I got a fanny pack for Christmas. Oh, I got it in a white elephant. <laughs> okay um my sister so. said she recently went to a white elephant and she thought it was like a funny white elephant but it was more mm. of like a serious white elephant mm. uh-oh <laughs> and she brought her gift that she brought was the fanny pack that looks like a hairy man's belly button <laughs> and everyone oh <laughs> what was the vibe <laughs> but, and everyone else brought like a nice gift, you know, yeah, like a nice blanket, like, mug. Yeah, yeah, like things for the home, <laughs> lotions, candles. And then she brings the hairy man fanny pack. <laughs> okay, so my book club, we did a white elephant this year, and I had to specify this is not get rid of stuff, white elephant. This is not like funny. This is not like offload something weird you got. This is like give something you'd want to get, you know? And that, I think that helped. 
Okay. Yeah. My family did a white elephant and it was really a free for all, like do whatever you want. So I brought a blank, a fleece blanket that looks like a pizza. Oh, and <laughs> my sister loved getting that. And my mom, her contribution, she went over the limit and got brought this really nice face peel that's very mild that she uses. She probably just had an extra one, <laughs> but it was still in the box. And that's what I got. So like, I really made out great. Oh. It was incredible. Okay, I have an issue with people who go over the limit when it comes to like a white elephant. Well, I went over the limit on my pizza blanket. (laughs) (laughs) I guess sometimes you have to. I felt it was worth it. I'm always like, yeah, 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 I know. I'm glad your sister got it. I'm sure her kids like it. Yeah. You know, it actually was a problem. Like one of my nieces that was not in the family that got it was pretty bummed because she wanted a pizza blanket. So I might have to get her one for her birthday. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> it might just be my go-to gift for the next year. <laughs> oh my gosh, the pizza blanket, dark horse. Mm-hmm. All right. Okay, so my answer to this question is I'm going to surprisingly love a fanny pack like a crossbody bag and leave a backpack. I don't wear a fanny pack in the way that you're thinking. I don't have a fashionable one, but I walk my dogs and I wow. do wear a dog fanny pack. It carries my phone, pepper spray, a whistle, poop bags treats oh my god <laughs> keys if i need them but i don't need keys to get into my house uh That's so helpful i love that oh lo- i just i mean and i don't care wow. that it doesn't look cute i mean maybe fanny packs are fine now but love it i, I don't own any hard. cute backpacks i am not I'm not a small backpack fashionable but ba- my sister has backpacks i'm just not a backpack person so no backpacks for me wow All right, everyone. Well, we hope you liked that. Um, Thanks for playing with us and listening in. We love sharing our thoughts with you. Stay tuned as we discuss the end of Age of Opportunity. Have you checked out Laura's speech materials yet on Teachers Pay Teachers or Boom Learning under Laura G. SLP? I am such a huge fan and I'm here to sing her praises. Since I'm a teletherapist, I use boom cards almost exclusively during my sessions. As with all things in speech, sometimes the most unexpected materials are a hit with the kiddos. My students love Laura's What Did You Find activities that feature a fun flashlight to look for different items. And her Lidcomb handouts for parents on TPT are also amazing. And I love to use them with private clients. She also has some great game type reinforcers like the picture reveal activities and a Connect Four donut game that I've been playing on repeat with one student for months. (laughs) The best part is that I can use almost all of her materials with a range of kids who have different levels of needs. This helps you get the most bang for your buck. Her materials are well thought out, evidence-based, and fun and engaging for the kids. We can't all be creative geniuses, so we might as well support and benefit from those who are. Thanks for sharing your genius with us, Laura. Go check them out today at Laura G. SLP on Boom Learning and TPT. I want to tell you about Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum. If you're an SLP looking for more work-life balance and a fresh way to do things in your private practice, then the Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum might be just what you're looking for. Tiny Talkers Groups are set up as a way to provide accessible speech and language support to young children in a small group setting. Our friend Megan Samuels, creator of Tiny Talkers, has done all the planning for you. When you sign up for the curriculum, you get a full 36-week program divided into summer, fall, winter, and spring semesters. 
The plans are easy to implement and adjust as needed to meet the needs of your clients. They include material checklists and parent handouts for each session. And the best part is, Megan designed each week so that all the materials you'll need can fit into one sensory bin. So once you get your group set up, you're done. In the years that follow, you'll pull out that bin and go. No planning, no stress, just fun. If you want to learn more about Tiny Talkers, go to tinytalkersgroupcurriculum.com to check it out. Make sure to use our code BOOKCLUB10 at checkout to get 10% off your order. We love Tiny Talkers Group Curriculum, and we know you'll love it too. Hi, guys. I'm happy to announce that I've just launched my new app called Say Hello. It's a speech sound practice app designed for parents of children who are receiving speech therapy for articulation and intelligibility impairments. Think of this app as a quick and engaging way for parents to complete speech homework without the fuss of those practice packets that we photocopy and they just are never seen again. It makes practice sessions easy and accessible while also helping parents to be natural coaches and know exactly how to cue their child to make their speech sounds correctly. So we all know that children who practice their speech sounds daily are more likely to make progress. This means the more they practice with the child, the less time will be spent in speech therapy and more confidence for their child. Say Hello provides parents with quick, guided practice sessions that they can do anywhere. Working in conjunction with their speech therapist, they pick the sound the child needs to work on and follow the provided prompts. Parents select the time that works best for them to receive notifications, and they can complete a practice session in three to five minutes. So we offer a free seven-day trial, and after that, it's just $4.95 a month. Check it out wherever you get your apps. All right, everybody, welcome back. So we're going to get into Chapter 10 and the conclusion of Age of Opportunity, and we're just wrapping up at the very end of the book. So Chapter 10 is all about the law and how impulsive teens are treated when they commit crimes. Dr. Steinberg starts by telling the story of somebody named Joseph. This is like a really heartbreaking story. And in fact, I have to say that a lot of the stories in this chapter are really heartbreaking. I don't know. I feel like every time I hear stuff like this, I'm just like, I want to go back to school and like be a public defender. (laughs) All I can think about is everyone who's in prison for things, you know, it's just heartbreaking. Yeah. Um, Joseph was convicted to life in prison without the possibility of parole in the state of Michigan when he was 15. So he was with three older teen friends and one of them had an idea to rob a convenience store. I think they were in Detroit. And this was the 70s. So they assumed it would just be quick, like an in and out thing. No one would be caught. But one of the boys had a gun and they didn't know and accidentally shot the owner who died later on. Joseph wasn't even in the store when the crime occurred. He was the lookout, but he was still present there. So he was convicted. And he wrote to Dr. Steinberg asking for help. He was now 50 years old and had spent 35 years in prison for this crime he was sort of tangentially involved in when he was 15. So there had recently, and this was probably within like the last 10 years, been a landmark decision from the Supreme Court, yeah, 2012, where they decided that mandatory life sentences for juveniles was unconstitutional. So Joseph had read about that and thought he might be able to have his case retried in light of this new decision and he would be able to prove that his 35 years served was good enough. 
Joseph had been accomplishing a lot while he was in prison. He got his GED, completed a two years associate's degree in criminal justice, and had focused a lot on self-improvement. So he had all these certificates he had earned, many different areas, auto repair, plumbing, carpentry, refrigeration repair, and a lot of other topics. He was well-respected by the prison administrators and his inmates there, and he was even the representative for the prison. He had even started a program to help inmates who were eligible for parole to better themselves and be better candidates for early release. So, I mean, Joseph was in there and he was working hard, you know. So Dr. Steinberg says he has received a lot of letters like this from inmates all over the country. Most of the stories are similar to Joseph. And these inmates, they take advantage of counseling and education programs. They're model inmates. And they pretty much all write to Dr. Steinberg thanking him for doing his research and also asking for any resources he has that might support their case. They're mostly asking him to help prove that what his research has shown, you know, that people change over time and that it's wrong to judge someone forever based on something they did as a teenager. And I love Dr. Steinberg saying like, he's like, I reply to every single one of these letters and I give everything I can to help them. And he said, but he's never heard of any of these inmates being released from prison. And I feel like he was pointing out to like, these are not the inmates that are saying, I didn't do this. They take full responsibility. They're saying, yes, I did it, but I was a teen and like- 100%. You know. And haven't I served enough time, 35 years. Yeah. And he's proving, they all are proving like what he said, wouldn't they be assets to the community Yeah, if they were released, like having done all this work, you know? Yeah. There have been three landmark Supreme Court cases that have helped to make sure that imposing a life sentence for juvenile murderers would no longer be automatic. So there was the one we discussed earlier, which is called the Miller decision, which did not outright ban life sentences for adolescents, but just made them like no longer the default. And before that, there was Graham versus Florida, which banned life sentences for juveniles who had been convicted of crimes other than homicide which is insane that that was like a thing. And before that, there was Roper versus Simons, which got rid of the juvenile death penalty altogether. So in all of these cases, Dr. Steinberg served as an expert to help the court to prove that adolescents are less responsible for their decisions because of their brain immaturity. And when we think about adults who commit crimes, you know, we take different factors into account because we figure, you know, by the time somebody's a certain age, they've learned how to behave within society. But unfortunately, adolescents are immature in a way that's different from a typical immature adult because they still will likely grow into an adult who has the ability to exercise self-restraint. So it's just adults probably know, you know, right from wrong. They can control themselves better. But adolescents, they still have time to grow and mature, you know, and they were in a different place when they committed their crime. So as a society, we have laws in place showing that we don't expect teenagers to have the maturity to handle some things, like drinking before the age of 21 or driving before the age of 16. Yet, all of a sudden, somebody commits a more serious crime, and it seems like we just forget about that completely. Dr. Steinberg is not saying that teenagers who commit serious crimes shouldn't be punished. Yes, of course, they should pay for their crime but just that they're more likely to be rehabilitated and should not be given life sentences when their brain is still so plastic 
and they have the ability to grow and mature into an adult who can make better decisions. Mm -hmm. Dr. Steinberg is saying that adolescence immaturity doesn't mean they're not guilty. And mostly it just means that they're less guilty. So that's kind of a different way to look at it, too. You can commit the same crime, but is there an extent of guilt that kind of changes based on how old you are? Mm -hmm. So he used an example of somebody dropping a stone from a freeway overpass, which then shatters a driver's windshield, causing them to crash and be seriously injured. And if the person who did that was eight, we would treat them a lot differently than a person who did that that was 28. You know, it's easy to see the difference between an eight-year-old and a 28-year-old and to think, you know, the 28-year-old probably should have known better and therefore is more guilty. And it's a lot harder to differentiate when you're looking at a 15-year-old and a 28-year-old as opposed to an 8-year-old and a 28-year-old. So Dr. Steinberg was able to argue as an expert in court that adolescents are more impulsive, more vulnerable to peer pressure, and more unformed than adults. And that information was helpful in beginning to change the laws around punishment for adolescents. He shared another story. This is a little more complicated about a time that he was consulted during a pre-trial investigation for an Afghani teenager who had been detained and was being charged for building and setting IEDs, which are those explosive devices, assisting al-Qaeda operatives, and throwing a hand grenade that killed an American soldier. So the attorney that was prosecuting him was asking Dr. Steinberg if this adolescent's ability to build these bombs was showing that we should treat him as an adult and sentence him in that way. So he was saying like, okay, if we have this kid and he's able to build these bombs, doesn't that show that cognitively he's the same as an adult and therefore should be sentenced the same way? And of course, Dr. Steinberg testified it doesn't really take advanced cognitive skills to follow a set of instructions or like a visual how to connect A to B and then like make this explosive device. He also said that a 15-year-old who's taking adult orders, so there's a lot of adults in the room who are telling him what to do, can't be fully responsible for their criminal behavior. Even when they're a terrorist, so in this case, there was so much emotional, you know, charge going around because it's like, this is really serious. So I feel like they were kind of leaning on that and letting that cloud their judgment a little bit. Mm -hmm. So even in the case of a terrorist, we still have to remember that an adolescent's brain is not fully mature and they can't think ahead and control their impulse because those skills are not fully developed. So the question we should be asking, again, is not if they are guilty, but if they're fully responsible for their behavior. And Dr. Steinberg shared that that adolescent, that Afghani teen, he was in Guantanamo Bay. And Dr. Steinberg actually went there and met him. And at that point, he was no longer a teenager. He was in his early 20s. He had been there for seven years in solitary isolation. But he was still kind and friendly. And at that point, he was claiming he had falsely confessed to throwing the grenade that killed the soldier because he wanted the interrogators to just stop hurting him because they were torturing him. Yeah. It's really sad. And it just goes to show and sort of back up that there's a lot of evidence that because of them being developmentally more immature, juveniles are more prone to giving false confessions. And to just wrap up that story, the case never really went to trial because um, during that time, Obama was inaugurated and he suspended all Guantanamo Bay tribunals. Ultimately, 
he ended up being sentenced to an additional seven years in a Canadian prison. I think everybody should just read that. The description was so interesting. I liked hearing, you know, that this kid was in this cell that was bright white and the fluorescent lights were on 24-7, which is torture in itself. I kept those details out because I was like, it was a little harsh to read. Oh. <laughs> no, it's. I'm glad you're talking about it. I just didn't really cover it because it was like sad. It was so striking that the people coming with Dr. Steinberg had brought him some of his favorite foods like pita and hummus and that he like spread them out and offered them to Dr. Steinberg and was like, you're my guest. And he was to think that these kids are just lost and there's no helping them. Like, clearly, this is someone who could, you know, he's a good kid. It's just he's a victim of circumstances, right? Precisely. And he talks a lot also about kind of propaganda and brainwashing by adults on impressionable teens. So, you know, he was Mm -hmm. heavily involved in Al Qaeda and they were clearly telling him like the Americans hate you. You know, they want you to die, your whole family to die. So he was indoctrinated. And so it's like there is a lot of gray area, I think, for like guilt, you know, in that case. Yeah. But interesting story. Yeah, definitely. So false confessions are more common with adolescents because they're especially susceptible to techniques used by U.S. interrogators. And these techniques include deception and they're used to exploit adolescents' cognitive immaturity. One of these tactics is called minimization, where the interrogator makes it sound like if you just agree to a lesser version of the crime, you'll get a lesser punishment. So this would be somebody saying something like, oh, you know, if you cooperate with me, I'm going to see if we can take you out of here as soon as possible and, you know, get you home to your parents. And this is obviously pretty tempting, especially for younger adolescents who are more interested in immediate rewards. A lot of this interrogating is done without teens even understanding their rights. And it's been shown that adolescents under the age of 15 don't even understand the Miranda rights. And at this point, Laura, I wanted to bring up something because this was just reminding me. I think we watched this documentary around the same time. Do you remember Making a Murderer? Yeah, I thought of it That's too. That's what I was thinking of. I was like, his oh my nephew. gosh, that is yeah. his nephew who was like on an IEP, had learning disability at least, mm-hmm. and was interrogated alone badgered and deceived for days right i mean made a false confession and he's in prison now yeah heartbreaking yeah everybody should watch that i mean it's a little bit of a hard watch because it's very sad but i felt like it was just a total like great example of what he's talking about yeah the minimizing of course they do that and they and they kind of let you know that they're on your side but then also the fact that police are allowed to deceive that if you were doing something with another kid they could say well he's in the other room telling me you did it they can make up anything so it's not fair dr steinberg writing this book he did i mean i wish it was better known but he did a great service for everyone (laughs) um societies in general have a hard time drawing the line that tells you know, the difference between an adult and a child in the eyes of the law. So many countries just pick an age, like 18, and then they treat everyone who's 18 the same way, regardless of their maturity. In the Supreme Court, instead of banning the death penalty or life without parole for all people younger than 18, they suggested that we let judges and juries make those kinds of decisions on a case-by-case basis. So in theory, this makes sense, but there's a lot of issues with this kind of thinking. So 
There have been studies shown that black adolescents are seen as more adult-like than white adolescents, even when the judge is black, and that the clothing that the adolescent wears can make them appear more or less mature. Same with facial features, body posturing can also make someone seem young or older. In the U.S., we use different ages for a lot of different things. So, for example, the different ages we use to figure out if somebody can make their own medical decisions, someone can drive or drop out of school or vote or go to an R-rated movie alone, buy cigarettes, buy alcohol. These ages all range, you know, anywhere from 15 to 21. So there's a lot of different ages and restrictions. He gave an example of how an attorney once contacted a friend of his, Dr. Steinberg's, to ask for advice on how to handle an adolescent inmate who was asking to smoke cigarettes, but was below the legal age to purchase them. So he was clearly old enough to be tried for an adult crime and be sentenced to an adult prison, but not old enough to have a cigarette. Crazy. And I love this history about the automobile. This was really interesting to me. So initially after the automobile was introduced they began licensing people and the minimum age to drive was 18 but then in the 20s and 30s it was lowered to 16 so that 16 and 17 year olds could do jobs you know in urban areas that had to do with driving trucks or driving cars and also so that teens who lived in rural areas could drive on public roads to transport farm equipment so a lot of it was inspired by you know industry and just needing like younger kids to work. The minimum age to drink was similar and was initially 21 and then reduced in some states to either 18, 19 or 20, depending on the state. But lowering the drinking age led to an increase in highway fatalities. So all the states raised the minimum age back to 21. The United States bullied the individual states into doing that by telling them that they would pull a lot of their highway funding if they didn't raise the age. So every state did it. So again, you know, there's all these other factors involved in these ages. It's not it's not driven by science, which was his point. And, you know, brain science is only a small part of the decision about what is appropriate when it should be the biggest factor, you know. Mm-hmm. And I know he's a little biased, but he's right. <laughs> yeah. The Supreme Court decision to abolish the juvenile death penalty was used in an argument of whether or not teenagers should be allowed to get abortions without telling their parents. So basically, the American Psychological Association weighed in on the decision of whether or not to abolish the juvenile death penalty. And it seemed like they were being hypocritical because it seemed like they were saying that the science showed that adolescents were not as mature as adults when it comes to participating in and being sentenced for crimes, but they were mature enough to make their own decisions about something like abortion. So it's like, okay, they're mature enough for this, but not enough for this. And he points out, Dr. Steinberg points out that the context and circumstances around each situation are different and therefore they should be treated differently. Mm -hmm. So most adolescents who make decisions to commit a crime, it's very impulsive. They don't think about it in advance. They just do it. But the decision to get an abortion is normally made in a pretty unhurried fashion. You know, you talk to some adults around you, make a decision. And there's also, you know, laws in a lot of states that impose a waiting period before someone can even commit to their decision to get an abortion. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of time involved with a decision like that. 
And then we think about Joseph's story in the beginning. You know, that was really impulsive. Why don't we just go rob a convenience store right now? Boom, they go out, they do it. So brain science has been taken into account in criminal law. Um, that's where it's made the most impact. So several states have changed or are reconsidering their laws that govern whether juveniles can be tried as adults. There have also been some decisions to mandate that younger adolescents need to have their competency to stand trial evaluated before they can be transferred to the adult system. So each person would be evaluated to see if they could, if they were mature enough. In some states, added protections have been made for adolescents who are being interrogated, like requiring the presence of a parent or an attorney, which, yes, obviously, (laughs) or videotaping the questioning so that it can be reviewed later. Research on adolescent brain development has shown that an adolescent's judgment in a situation where they can have unhurried decision-making and consult with others, also known as cold cognition, is likely to be just as mature as an adult's by the time they're 16. However, an adolescent's judgment in a situation where there's high emotional arousal, time pressure, or peer pressure, which is known as hot cognition, isn't likely to be as mature as an adult until the adolescent is around 18 or even 21. So Dr. Steinberg suggests that brain development be taken into account with establishing the age of legal adulthood by determining situations that require cold cognition versus those that require hot cognition. Situations that require cold cognition would be like voting, granting consent for medical procedures, or being in a scientific study. So it's the age for those can be a little bit lower because, you know, the reasoning is more like an adult's. But a later age makes sense for situations that involve hot cognition, like driving, drinking, and engaging in criminal acts. So those situations often hit the temptation of immediate reward against the consideration of long-term costs, which is happening in a situation where there's also high emotional arousal and probably peers that are present. Think about a car full of like speeding teenagers, right? And given this information... Dr. Steinberg thinks we should raise the minimum driving age to 18, set the minimum age of adult criminal responsibility to 18, and continue to restrict minors' access to alcohol, tobacco, and marijuana. He feels very seriously that if we are really concerned about improving teenagers' health, the decision to raise the driving age would be the single most important policy change we could make. And listen, I see the teenagers on the road, and I agree. (laughs) And I also think about myself. I didn't start driving till I was 18, but I think about my friends who are 16. And we talked about this earlier, but it is it's a little crazy, you know. Okay, as a true crime buff. Yeah. The only thing I do think Mm -hmm. about, which he didn't really mention, is what about the teens who commit like premeditated murder? Did he talk about that? Like, if it's clear, what about those two girls that took their one friend into... Oh, Slender Man. I was thinking about that, too. The Slender Man. Yeah. The Slender Man one. What about if it's clear that a kid has been, like, abusing animals from a young age and then commits, you know, these are... There are... So I guess what he was saying was there's a lot of nuance to it and each... It needs to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. But yes, if you commit a crime impulsively with a group of friends... And something accidentally kind of happens or. Yeah. And I know that people like, especially with that case of Joseph, right, where it's like, yeah, they killed a man. Right. The gun went off accidentally. It was a little bit of an accident. Yeah. But still, it's like somebody is dead at the end of the day. 
And I think there's a lot of emotions involved with that that make you really want like revenge. You know, you want somebody to pay. And to send a message to other teens. Right. Like, listen, if you do these stupid things, there are consequences, lifelong consequences for everyone involved. But it literally doesn't even matter because of the brain science. Yeah. So it's like you can try to send the message just like those billboards in the subway. Like if you have a baby as a teen, they probably won't go to college. That's true. But they still in the moment, they don't care, you know. And I guess that's his big message, right, is that wasting our time on education, teaching kids about the dangers of things is it's wasted. It's it's pointless. Right. And the only way we can ha- give them the best chance is by encouraging self-regulation and teaching non-cognitive skills, right? Uh, absolutely. Yes. So um, I want to talk about the conclusion now. It was a lot of review. So if you read the book, you should probably know a lot of what he's talking about. But he did have some recommendations for parents and educators that I thought we're worth talking about. So his recommendations for parents, um, number one is to lessen the chance that your child will go through puberty early. So we talked about that. Endocrine disruptors, screen time, things like that. Be aware of the emotional and social circumstances that can undermine your child's judgment. So just I think that's like supervising more and making sure the children don't have a lot of unsupervised times with other peers. Reducing your child's exposure to stress, encouraging, you know, physical movement like we talked about or more yoga, more meditation, mindfulness. Don't worry about whether your 20-something child is taking too long to grow up. So maybe enjoying the period of plasticity, allowing them to have positive experiences so that they can benefit from that instead of rushing them. And then for educators, you know, he said we should try to reimagine what secondary schools can accomplish, which I agree. I loved our conversations about ways to weave those different memory concepts into high school settings. I think that's a really good thing. And then also reliance on test scores. I loved all the stats that he listed about, you know, how what we're doing right now is not really working. So if you are in a position to make changes within the curriculum of the school, maybe consider that. Um, Incorporating social and emotional learning into the middle school curriculum. Love that idea. We have read at least one book that talks a lot about social emotional learning. So go check that out if you're interested. (laughs) Make high school more demanding. I love that. So let's get our kids up there with um, those kids from China and Germany (laughs) (laughs) and keep them more engaged and less bored which is actually what's really important from that takeaway. And then spend less money and time on classroom-based health education because we know it literally does basically nothing. Promote authoritative parenting if you can. He talks about maybe having some public service programs or some kind of school-sponsored clinics for parents where they can learn a little bit more about parenting. Prepare adolescents for the psychological demands of college, not just the academic ones. So this is, again, like that self-discipline, grit, resilience. I think kids need to start preparing in high school for that so they can be ready. Employers of teenagers and young adults should learn about the latest findings on adolescents' brain and behavioral development. So, you know, just trying to get everybody on board I don't know how that could happen. Love that idea, Dr. Steinberg. But 
anyway. And then he also has some thoughts for policymakers, but it's basically everything we just talked about. So relying on science more than just like random information. But yeah, overall, I thought this was a great book. What did you think, Laura? I loved it. I mean, I've I've been thinking about my major takeaways. Mm -hmm. I got a lot out of the chapter on parenting, surprisingly. Yeah. (laughs) You know, just that authoritative style and trying to incorporate that into what I do, being warm and supportive and firm. And then, yeah, I guess a focus on kind of executive functioning skills, self-regulation, impulse control, decision-making, being able to prioritize things and, and think about consequences. These are skills that our kids really, really need if they're starting puberty earlier. So Maybe I'm going to, after this winter cohort, rejoin Tara's community and refresh my executive (laughs) functioning skills. (laughs) But yeah, I just, I thought it was a really, really interesting book. Something I, you know, information I really hadn't considered before. And it's given me a new outlook on childhood and adolescence. Yeah, I agree. I, as a parent, it was really interesting for me to think about, especially having a younger child, like the things that I can do to not only keep her young for as long as possible and prevent, you know, puberty from starting too early, but also like parenting, how important that is. And I do definitely want to do more research into how to increase like determination, resiliency, and um, self-control. But yeah, I loved all those takeaways and I feel like I understand teenagers' behavior so much more now, and it's really, I feel like that's so helpful because it's not good to be blaming these teens for something they can't control. So normally, you know, brain science is not really my thing, but this book, I was like, maybe it is, you know? Yeah. (laughs) Well, you know what? I got like a lot better understanding of certain things in the brain. You know? Yeah, me too. You hear it, you hear it, you hear it. Each time you hear about the brain, it sinks in a little bit deeper. And this connection between the limbic system and the prefrontal cortex is really solidified for me now. (laughs) And I'm feeling good about my knowledge of that, how they impact each other. And yeah, I feel good. Me too. I feel like the (laughs) book was great. I hope it helps parents, educators, other SLPs, especially at the secondary level. And yeah, I mean, I think I'm going to be thinking about this book for a while. So yeah. Okay, guys, we have a big announcement. Uh, Our next book that we will be reading again over two months because it's a little bit thick is called Hunt, Gather, Parent, What Ancient Cultures Can Teach Us About the Lost Art of Raising Happy, Helpful Little Humans by Dr. Mycleen Duclef. And this book came recommended to us by an SLP who said she's dying for other people to read it so she can discuss it with them. (laughs) <laughs> uh, and I've already flipped through. It looks really good. I'm, I don't know. I'm really fired up for this one, especially because the parenting chapter helped me so much in this last one. As a non-parent, for some reason, I'm really embracing yeah. these this parenting advice. <laughs> um, well, people are jazzed on this book, so we probably will be too. And we always are open to book recommendations. So if you think of a book you think we would love, drop it into our DMs and we'll consider it for an upcoming book selection. Yep. All right. Well, thanks for tuning in. We hope you loved Age of Opportunity just like we did. And if you did, let us know. See you next time. Bye, Laura. Bye, Adrian. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of the SLP Book Club. If you love what we're doing, the best way to show your support is by leaving a five-star review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. If you want to join the discussion, head to our Instagram at SLP underscore book club. Each week, we're posting about the topics we discuss, and we'd love for you to weigh in. Want to listen to episodes early and ad-free, plus get one free resource from my TPT store each month? Go to patreon.com slash the SLP book club and join our Patreon for only $3.